We are in a series called Life with God. If you're here for the first time, yes, I am an idiot, and you're getting to see it right now. But we are doing a great series. And if you are here for the first time, you're kind of coming in to the middle of a movie. So uh, we're going to catch you up real quick, and then we're going to go from where we're at. Uh, what we've been talking about in this series is what is the life God offers us. Thank you so much. I don't like that one. Um, what is the life God offers us? You know, we're, we uh, are invited to come to God, and we are promised that our life will be better. And yet a lot of people do that, and they feel like their lives really aren't that much better. Maybe they feel a little more security in that, I think when I die, I'll go to heaven now, and that's a huge plus. But really, if I was to measure how good my life is now compared to when I wasn't going to church or I didn't really know God, I don't see a big difference. So that's what this series is about, is leaning in on that question. Is there really a, a qualitative difference to the life that we can have? And Jesus, one of the things that he said, and we talked about this the very first week, is that our life, the life that God offers, it comes in direct proportion to how close we are to him. He makes this statement. He says, my purpose is to give life to the full. Life in the fullest measure. That's my purpose. And the closer you get to me, the more you will experience the fullness. So what we've done is we've talked about three areas of our life where God comes close. And the first area was what we called the main floor. We're using the analogy of a house. On the main floor where we live our day-to-day -day life, God wants to be close and he wants to offer us life. And basically, here's what he tells us. If we will live in the truth that he teaches if we will follow the precepts that he gives about handling life in this world, we will get more life. We will experience an abundant life. And it's a great promise. Then the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the basement, which is the area where we don't do the things we should do or we do the things we shouldn't do. And we've been really clear. All of us have a basement. All of us have areas that we struggle in. And we are given life, it says, when we walk in purity, when we follow the path of purity. And God jumps into our life to help us do that. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that. This week, I want to take you to the upper room. And that is our final floor, and we're going to be spending the rest of this series talking about the upper room. The upper room is where we directly relate to God, sort of God face-to-face, -face, interacting with him, feeling intimacy, feeling like there really is a vibrant relationship there. And it's interesting because so many of us don't feel that when it comes to God. We feel that he is, he's still sort of removed, that uh, you know, he's still not that much a part of our life. There isn't that sense that we're really, really involved with him and close to him. And so we want to tackle that. And today I want to talk to you about how do you get into the upper room? How do you get through the door, as it were, of the upper room? Now, these teachings go along with some readings that we're doing in a book. And uh, if you don't have a copy of the book, you can pick it up outside. If you can't afford it, somebody's graciously donating them and, and would be glad to underwrite your book. But if you're reading, we are on, just so everybody's confused, we're on chapter 29, right? 29, and that just happens to be the section that starts into the upper room. Coincidental, amazing, there is a God. So that's where you are if you're doing your reading. 
And I also wanted to throw this out. Uh, there are memory verses. And let me just ask this question. Uh, how many of you are making an attempt to memorize this as we go along? Do the memory verses? All right, very cool. Here's what I'm going to do. Since there's only a few of you, I can make this offer. I'm going to take you out to eat if you memorize these verses. I will take you out to lunch, pay for it. It will be a great time. We will celebrate. So you just need to know the verses, OK? All right, are you on? Those of you that raised your hands, and if you didn't raise your hands, not too late to jump in. Two weeks, we'll go do it, okay? Two weeks, we'll go do that. Huh, can't do that at the Irvine campus. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. I want to talk to you about the ABCs of getting into the upper room. There are three steps that are really important to think through. And what I want to do is sort of journey with you through the Bible as to how God uh, introduces himself and how he expects us to relate to him. So these are kind of the ABCs. You can't skip any of them. You have to go through this process, really, to get into the upper room. And uh, I will also tip my hand right now on the three points that I'm going to make. And I know sometimes I never get to filling in the blanks. And for some of you, you hate that, that I don't finish the darn outline and you don't get all the blanks filled in. So let me give you the answers right now, OK? So the first one is a distant God, a distant God. The second one is a curtain ripped. And the third one is a new dad. Intriguing, huh? So let's just say that together so that I know that we've got our three main points. And if I keel over and die or trip on a thing and fall into the front row, you've got your outline filled out, OK? So the first one is a distant God. The second one is? A curtain ripped, and the third one is a new dad. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, our beautiful people on the sides would love to give you a Bible. Just raise your hand, we'll throw a Bible at you. Um, Exodus chapter 3, as you're turning there, this is the beginning of a new season in the Jewish uh, nation. And they have been in captivity for 400 years. And many of you know the story because of the movies that have been made. How many of you saw The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? All right. How many of you saw The Prince of Egypt? All the younger generations. A lot of you saw both of them. Okay. That's this story. And what we have is we have Moses. He's an 80-year-old man. And he is walking in the wilderness. He is tending sheep. And he comes to a really strange site that you all know. It is the... Burning bush. He comes to a burning bush, a bush that's on fire and never burns up. And all of a sudden, that bush starts to talk to him. And he starts to get close. And the bush says, you cannot come close until you take something off. What does he have to take off? His shoes, his sandals, because he is on holy ground. Now, let me just ask you this question. Do you think that ground was holy? Or do you think God was saying, I am holy. And if you're going to get close and talk to me, you're going to show me some respect. Yes, that's the answer, right? There was nothing about that ground that was so cool. It was that God was doing something, and he said, Moses, let's just get really clear on who you are and who I am, and I deserve respect. I deserve reverence. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. You're talking to a holy God. He goes ahead, and they have a little interaction, and he basically tells Moses, um, you're going to help me set my people free. And Moses is timid and does not want to do it. They go back and forth. And finally, Moses gives this objection. And it sounds like it's a weird objection, but it actually makes sense at the time. Moses says, what if I go and they ask me your name and I don't know what to say? 
And the reason that that would make sense is they have lived for 400 years in a culture that is pagan. The, the Egyptian culture was very pagan and polytheistic. In other words, they had lots of different gods. And the Jewish people had forgotten a lot about their god. There was no Bible at that point, right? This is 400 years of captivity in a foreign culture. So everyone has forgotten about the one true God. And so when Moses says, I need to have a name, that would be the first question people would be asking. Well, who is this God? Who is this God of all the gods that we've heard about? And so here is the answer that God gives. Moses said to God, uh, let's see, what verse are we in there? 13. 3.13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. All right, now, I am is a weird name, and that actually isn't even his name. Yahweh is the name that he goes by. That's his formal name. If you ever read in the Old Testament and you notice that sometimes when it refers to God, it calls him Lord and they're capitalized, a large capital L and then a small capital O-R-D. Have you ever noticed that? Look in your Bibles, you'll see that. Every time that word is used, it is the word Yahweh. It is the official name of God. Yahweh is the official name of God. And so here, what uh, Yahweh is explaining to Moses as he says, listen, here's what you need to know about me. I am. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. What do you mean you are? And God said, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you who I am. I am forever. I am real. I am self-sustaining. I'm not dependent on anyone else. I am everywhere. I am transcendent. I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am holy. I am magnificent and majestic. And I am life. I am life. All of those things, you'd say, well, how does all that fall out of that word? That's what scholars tell us. That's what the meaning would be. People would understand, oh, we're talking about not a God. We're talking about the God, the God, who is the God over everything the God over all these other little gods, the God. And this idea of life really is something that Moses thinks about and walks with then for the next 40 years of his life because in one of the last addresses that he gives to his people before he dies, he makes this really incredible statement. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We don't have it up on the screen. If you're a fast flipper of pages, you can flip over there. But this is what Moses tells people about God. He says to them, Now choose life, so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord. Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh, your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. And then I love this line. For the Lord is your the closer you are to him, the more you follow his statutes, the more you interact with him and hold fast to him and obey him, the more life will be part of what you experience. You will experience real life. And an interesting thing happens, an interesting dynamic, because as Moses says this, 
all of a sudden the people are feeling this tension because it's like, you know, it's not that we don't believe you. It's not that we don't think there's life in holding fast to God. The problem is we're having a, hold time, a hard time holding fast to God. We're having a hard time doing the things that he tells us we should do, of following the Ten Commandments and the stipulations that he says. We have a hard time being intimate. We have a hard time loving him and loving other people. We're having a hard time with these things. And so it isn't that we don't believe that there's no life in following God. We believe you. We're just not having a hard time getting there. And it's a very interesting thing because here's the first truth. Believe it or not, here's the first truth you need to know if you want to get into the upper room. And that is that God is distant. There's a distance between us and God, a distant God. And in the Old Testament, they recognized that God was distant. They loved him. Uh, They reverenced him very often. But they felt that there was this gap. And in fact, we read then hundreds of years, fast forward hundreds of years, God introduces himself to another man, Isaiah. And in Isaiah, in the very first introduction where Isaiah's meeting God, God's meeting Isaiah, they do this whole thing. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, some of you, we've studied this in here, some of you know this passage. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and a train of his robe filled the temple. The temple was a huge structure, and so... Isaiah's going to church one day, going into the temple, and God shows up, and it it seems to surprise him that he'd actually see, meet God at church, but he does meet God, and God shows him in all of his glory. And above him were seraphim, those are angels, each with six wings, with two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, two they were flying. They're calling to one another, and what are they saying? They are saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, this is an attribute of God that, of course, is underlined here. And let me just talk to you about the holiness of God and what the holiness means. There are sort of two parts to this. The first part of it is that he is majestic. He is magnificent. In fact, he's different. He's not like you and me. When we think about God and we think, well, you know, he's just sort of the man upstairs. That's really not accurate. He's not just the man upstairs. He's not Morgan Freeman. And I love Morgan Freeman. And there's something really compelling about the way he plays God. But that is not God. Nobody would mistake Morgan Freeman for God if you met God. He is wholly different. He is awesome. If he came in in all of his glory right now, we'd all be down on the ground. Because he is magnificent and beyond anything that we can imagine. And that's one of the parts of holiness. But here's the second part, and this is so important. Holiness is pure. Holiness means purity. And what it tells us about God is that he is pure. There is no blemish in him. He is perfect. No sin, no mistakes. There's nothing a little dark. He does not have a flat side like we do. He is pure. But part of his purity means that those of us, all of us, that are impure, there's going to be a distance. There's going to be an inability for us to totally relate to him or to get too close to him. There's going to be a sense of, I fall kind of short. You're pure and I'm contaminated. And it's not just on our side, just so that we're totally clear about this. It's not just on our side, believe it or not. It's on God's side too. He's like, you can't get too close. You can't get too close. In your current condition, you cannot get too close to me. 
Uh, one of the, I think, preeminent scholars of, well, he is the pre, uh, preeminent. I think he's maybe the greatest scholar of our generation, J.I. Packer. He says this about the Old Testament. He says again and again in the Old Testament, it was stressed that humans must keep their place, their distance in the presence of a holy God. That runs so contrary to what we emphasize all the time. God is my forever friend. God is my pal. God is just, you know, me and God. We hang out together. And I just want to make it clear. In the Old Testament, that's not the way God is portrayed. There is a distance and there is a tension created by this distance. Now, why am I bringing this up? Here's why I'm bringing this up. The truth of God has to run before the love of God. Let me just say that again. If you want to relate to God, you need to start with the truth about him if you want to get to the love with him. And let me explain what I mean by this. Okay, and let me just see if this is going to be an appropriate example. If we talk honestly about Santa Claus right now, is there going to be any stress in this room about revealing something that we shouldn't be revealing? Be totally honest, because I don't want you to hate me for this. Yes? We got All right. So I'm not going to talk about Santa Claus. I'm going to talk about Superman. All right, and sorry, we're going to uncover Superman here. Can you love Superman? No. You know why? Because he's not real. You can't really love something that's not real. You can think you can, and you can build an image of something and say, well, I love that image. But the reality is, if you're going to love something, it's got to be real. And many people in our world say they love God, and what's the problem? They've built an image of God that's not accurate. They don't even know who God is. They use the term. They say, I love God. They don't love God because they don't even know God. They don't know anything about him. They don't know the truth about him. So what happens in the Old Testament is it says, before we're going to get to the love and grace side, we've got to start with the truth side. We've got to start with who God really is. And when we learn that, we learn that he's holy and he's majestic. And he's mighty and he's omnipotent and he's everywhere at the same time. And yes, he's merciful too. But the proper response to God is humility and to recognize, you know what, you're God and I'm not. And if you're interested in getting into the upper room, you've got to start there. You've got to start with the fact that there's a distance, there's a gap, there's a problem with a holy, blemish-free God and a little contaminated Kevin. There's a problem here. And that's where we start. That, that's the first part of stepping into the upper room. God is distant. Now, there was a structure in Israel, the temple. And everything about the temple reinforced what we're talking about here. That God is majestic and holy and separate. And we are contaminated and impure and don't measure up. And so if you went to the temple, and I think we have a picture here of the temple here in a second. If you went to the temple, it was the biggest, most majestic structure in all of, not just Jerusalem, but in all of Israel. And Jews were required to go there several times a year to go to the temple. And if you went into the temple, it was very clear that it 
undergirded the idea that God's majestic and big and mighty and deserves a really cool house like this. But it also emphasized that there's separation issues here. And so you'd walk in, and the first place you'd walk into is called the court of the Gentiles, and anybody can walk in the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So Jewish people can, men and women can, Gentiles can, anyone can. Then you would go through a wall, and you'd come into the court of the women. And uh, by the way, I did not make up these rules, and so if you have a hard time with the chauvinism of this statement, don't take it out on me. But you'd walk into the court of the women, and in the court of the women, no Gentiles now, but anyone who was Jewish, men and women, anyone could come into the court of the women. If you walk through the court of the women, you'd come to another wall, and you'd come to another court, and that was called the court of the men. And that means uh, you could walk. No females now can walk through this thing, but now men can walk in, and they can get up, and they get pretty close, actually, to the temple structure. But they couldn't even go right up to the temple because there was another courtyard. And in that courtyard, only the priest could go. And the priest would offer sacrifices and do various things around the temple itself. And men could stand back and look, and women could stand back and look a little further, and the Gentiles really couldn't see anything. They're so far out of there. But you have sort of this whole thing. And then there were certain people, the priesthood, that could actually go into the temple, go into the temple building. And then in the back of the temple, there was a small room called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place that one man went once a year on Yom Kippur. It was the high priest. And he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sin sacrifice, a sin offering for the people of Israel once a year. And it emphasized the fact that, God, you are holy. We are not holy. We have to make a sacrifice to continue a relationship with you. But in this room, it was, the, the room uh, was defined by a thick, one-foot-thick curtain. And the holy priest would have to spend uh, literally days preparing for his trip into the Holy of Holies, preparing himself both physically and preparing himself spiritually. And he would walk in and they would tie a rope around his waist. And, uh, and they, he would have bells sewn into the bottom hem of his robe. And he would go into the curtain. And the reason that he had the bells was because as long as the bells were tinkling, that was a good sign. The man was still moving. But if they stopped, what they would assume is that guy went in impure. And he was struck dead by God. And because we can't go in to get him, because we'll be struck dead, good thing he's got the rope around his waist. We'll pull him out. That really is the truth. That's the way that it went. Once a day, one guy would go in there into the presence of God. That's what they, they thought, in the presence of God. And you can understand why people, generation after generation, would get this idea is God is distant. He's not just our pal. We can't just sort of, you know, fade into a relationship with him. It's much more serious. There's a lot of steps of getting in there. And even then, we're going to be reminded constantly that we fall short. Then one day, a little boy, 12 years old, went to the temple. And he was fascinated. Amazing place. And he looked around, and he was talking with people and so forth. And he got so caught up in what was going on in the temple that his parents actually left to go home, forgot him, 
and had to come back and get them. And when they, they caught him, and if you're a parent that's lost a child, you know exactly what their reaction was when they came up to their little boy. Where have you been? What have you been doing? You have driven us crazy. We've been so worried about you. And this little boy looked at his parents and said something really interesting. He said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Why were you looking around? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Who was that little boy? Jesus. It's our first introduction. And you know what? Those are the first words Jesus ever says. Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Now, what's so interesting to me, to call the temple a house, it's like, really? It's not a house. It's the temple. Come on. It's not just a house. And to call this holy, majestic, sovereign, I am kind of God, what does he call him? Father, what is that? Father, that is so inappropriate. How do you come across calling him dad? And as, as if that's not enough, that becomes Jesus' favorite title for God. Father, Father. He doesn't just call him Father. He calls him this word called Abba. What does Abba mean? Daddy. Jesus takes lots of grief over his ministry and during his lifetime because he has such an intimate title for God. It gets him into hot water. He lands in hot water because of, because of the Jewish leaders. But he even goes a step further because he says, he's not just my dad, I'm his son, the son of God. That lands him on the cross. That's blasphemous. How dare you say that? The Jewish leaders, when he would call himself the son of God, or put himself in some position where he, he claimed to be deity, well, they said finally, no, you can't do that. You die for doing that. And it lands this little boy who came into the temple at 12, and this man who lived his life calling this holy God Father, lands him on the cross. And a really interesting thing happens. A curtain is ripped when he dies on the cross. If you look in Matthew chapter 27, it says these words, that when Jesus said his last words, he cried out again in a loud voice. He gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And here's what happened. God said, now that he's died, that curtain can come down. So what's the significance of, of Jesus dying? Why is that such a big deal? Why does the curtain come down? Why is there now this gap between the holy God and the sinful person? Why is that eliminated? Because Jesus just happens to die. And there's a lot of places in the New Testament that tell us why, but one of them is 1 Corinthians 5.21. 1 Corinthians 5.21. And let's just read this together. Okay, it says this. God made him, who is the him in this? Just real quick. Jesus. God made Jesus. Okay. God made him, let's go together, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what God says, basically. He said, there's been a legal problem, actually, between a holy God and sinful people. And the legal problem is that because you're sinful... You deserve death. And in the court of God, that's what happens. Sorry, 
it's hard. That's the reason you felt the gap is because you deserve a punishment for that, for rebelling from me, for not walking with me, for not following my statutes, for not being intimate with me. That deserves a penalty, and the penalty is death. But I've come up with a solution, and it's in Jesus. And the fact that Jesus dies in your place, the fact that Jesus becomes the sacrifice, means that legally now I can take down the curtain because now I don't see your sin. Now when I see you, I see Jesus's righteousness. I see what Jesus was, and I give you credit for it. And you get to trade to Jesus all the stuff you didn't do right, all your mess, all your basement issues, all the garbage, all the times when you fell short of who you wanted to be. And even more, the times you fell short of who God made you to be. And you talk about the ultimate trade up. It's the ultimate trade up. I'll make the trade. Jesus, you get my filth. I will take your righteousness. And God said, with that arrangement, the curtain comes down. There is now not a distant God at all. You are unified. You are brought to him. And that is the second step. And it must happen. Listen, unless you make that transaction, unless you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that's why we talk about that, unless you believe in that transaction, unless you accept it and say, I want that for me, I'm making a decision to make that for me, you can never get to the upper room. You just can't get there. You've got to do that. You need to understand the distance and then you need to understand God's solution, which is Jesus and his sacrifice. But that's not enough to really get into the upper room. There's a third step. Years ago, we had a woman in our church, and she had been raised going to church. She had always considered herself a Christian. And after uh, coming to our church for a little while, she started to realize, you know what, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. And so... Uh, one time after a service, she came up and she said, you know what, I thought I was a Christian and I really never have been. It's never been personal for me. I've sort of intellectually assented to some things, but it's never become part of my life. And so Lisa became a Christian. And uh, Lisa had a friend that she had grown up with and they had gone to church together. And, and now Lisa was coming to our church and her friend was still going to the other church. Uh, and Pam uh, when Lisa told Pam, I've become a Christian. I want you to come to my baptism. Pam's reaction was not, woo, that's so awesome, yeah. What do you think her reaction was? You've always been a Christian. What are you talking about? And she said, no, Pam, I really haven't always been a Christian. I thought I was a Christian. I really wasn't, though. There was nothing personal in the relationship. And Pam said, that's foolish. She said, I'll come to your baptism only because I'm your friend, but you've been a Christian. And what was, what was hitting Pam so hard? If Lisa wasn't a Christian, what did that put into doubt? Whether Pam was a Christian. Anyway, Pam came to the baptism, thought that was sort of a cool thing. I met Pam a few months later. She said an appointment to come in to me. And she'd, I'd never met her. She'd never come to our church. And so she, she came in and she sat down with her husband and she said, a few months ago, my, my world was rocked spiritually because Lisa told me she became a Christian. And that was so threatening to me because I always thought she was a Christian because we were both Christians and we went to church and we did all this stuff. 
And she said, a couple months ago, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I have twin boys that are nine years old. And my greatest fear is that I won't see them grow up. And that has rocked my world again. And she said, here's what I realized. My spiritual life isn't strong enough for that problem. She said, I prayed a prayer. I even made maybe that legal transaction that you talk about, accepting that Jesus died for my sins. But now I need Jesus to be personal. Now I need him to walk with me. Now I need him to hold me and to tell me it's going to be okay. Now I need to trust him that somehow this is going to work out in the right way. And I've never had that. Never had that. And here's what she was looking for. In John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we are given another amazing offer. Now this goes beyond the deal, the legal transaction. This goes beyond it. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. A new dad. This is a statement of adoption. And it goes on top of the legal transaction. Now, you can't reverse it. You don't get the adoption if you've not gone through the legal process. You need to have that transaction taken care of. But so many of us, so many of us stop with, I prayed the prayer. I'm relatively secure that when I die, I'll go to heaven because that's what the Bible promises. If I accepted Jesus, died for my sins, that transaction has taken place and I believe in it. I really do. But we wonder why our spiritual lives are anemic. We wonder why God still feels so distant. I mean, we're told that it shouldn't be that way, but we still feel that way. And here's the reason. It's because we're not living as adopted children. We're not understanding the adoption. that We've actually been brought into God's family. Years ago, we had uh, some friends that decided to adopt a girl over in China, a little girl over in China. And, uh, and may, I'm sure some of you have adopted someone, and maybe you've gone overseas to adopt. Well, the process was rigorous and expensive, and they went through months of just trying to go back and forth on whether this thing would even happen. And once it happened, they were told, or, or once it was set up, they were told they'd need to come to China, actually. They'd have to spend time in China. Not, it wasn't like they just sweep in and pick up the kid and come back. They had to go, uh, the village that this little girl was in was in a remote part of China, so they had to travel there. And then they had to spend a week, they said, you have to spend a week in the village with us because we're not just handing a child over to you. That will freak her out. You're going to have to spend time, and there's going to have to be this whole process, and we will finalize the adoption legally while you are there. That's how this thing works. And you will have already paid all your money. You will have all done your traveling. You've filled out all the paperwork. All this stuff is happening. And then finally, after we feel comfortable, we will let you return to the United States with this little girl. And they went through the whole thing. And as they were leaving, realizing after living for a week in this village, and the little girl couldn't have known this at this point, 
that her life was changed forever. That she was stepping in to becoming an heir, a co-heir with a brother and a sister that were born in the United States and were biologically the children of this couple. And all of a sudden, this little girl got all the rights that her siblings now had. Do you know what some of us do? God goes to all that expense, does all the legal work, pays all the prices, does all the things. We're excited because now we can take his name, we can call ourselves a Christian, but you know what we tell him? I think I'll stay here in the village. You go on back. I'm glad to have your name now, but I think I'll just live here in the village. I I really don't want to go back to the United States and do that whole thing with you. And some of us live that way. We don't live as adopted children. We don't step in to all the things that come our way because we're adopted by the Father. And once we step into the adoption, we start to understand this upper room, this face-to-face, this idea that God is intimate, that he really cares about us, that he walks with us day by day at any time I can call on him. There's an intimacy factor that's built. There is also a unifying factor with each other because we're all now brothers and sisters. I mean, that's what the Bible calls us, brothers and sisters. You know, the Bible even says that we can call Jesus our brother. That sounds sacrilegious to you. I didn't bring that up. That's something Jesus said, that we can call him our brother. We become co-heirs with Christ. In uh, Romans, and I don't even want to read the whole passage, Romans 8, 15 through 17, last passage to look at. If you look down a few lines, there's this line. It says, we are co-heirs with Christ. In other words, all of the blessings that Jesus gets because he's the son of God, what this means is we get those blessings. We get those same blessings. Those are what we get. We are co-heirs with Christ. Do you know what that means? And this, again, this may just sound funny to you. Do you think God the Father loves Jesus more than he loves you? I'll give you the theological answer. No. He does not love Jesus more than he loves you. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. The the mission that Jesus comes to the world with, God says, you know what? You've got a mission too. You represent me on this earth. That's part of being in my family is you have a mission, you have a purpose, you've got a reason for being here, just like Jesus did. Your purpose is just like that. It's an amazing thing that God opens up. And what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the upper room. How do we step into adoption? How do we live as adopted children? If the legal part has been taken care of, how do we live as a child of the king? Child of the Father. It's going to be great. But here's what I want to do. Before we close our time, I want to make sure that you have a chance to respond. So there is an A, B, and a C to making sure you get to the upper room. Let me just walk through this. And if any part of this you haven't done, today can be your day. So the first one is to admit, to admit there's a gap, to admit that God is distant at times, to admit that there's a sin issue, that he's pure and I'm not pure. It's to admit. The A is to admit. I'm going to admit that now. I'm not going to cover it up. I'm not going to try to be good enough. I'm just going to admit, yeah, there's a problem. There's a gap. 
And if you've never admitted that, in a second you're going to have a chance to do that, just privately. You're going to get a chance to do it. The B is to believe, and it's to believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross, that this was actually the transaction that he's making. He's making this legal transaction. There's a deal. The Father will accept it. You can take Jesus' righteousness because Jesus will take your unrighteousness. The veil will be ripped. The curtain is torn. But you've got to believe. That's the point. You've got to believe that. And if you've never believed that, if you've never thought it, but now you're saying, I think I believe that, in a second you're going to get a chance to respond to that. And then finally, the C is to commit. And here's what I'm talking about. It's not committing to that belief. It's committing to live as an adopted child, to become a follower of Jesus. He's your brother now. He's the one that leads you. He's your leader. It's like he's your older brother. He's the one that's going to show you the way. And to really step into the life that adoption is. To say, I'm going to step into that life. I'm committing to that life. I'm not just committing to a belief that hopefully gets me to heaven when I die. I'm committing to a lifestyle now. The ABCs of the upper room. To admit, to believe, and to commit. So let me just give you uh, a few seconds. I ask you to bow your heads. And this is business between you and God. This isn't business between you and me or between you and the people around you. This is just between you and God. And if you haven't gone through those three steps, today can be your day. Today can be your day to do it. So let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and in a few seconds, Jairus will lead us in some worship.